The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. With me, as always, from the beginning of this series, is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, for the moment, in Brooksville, Florida. Hello and welcome, Your Excellency. Nice to be here again. This is going to be the final episode of our regular quarterly Francis Watch series. As many of you know, we lost Father Chicada this year, and Bishop Sanborn was moving the seminary this year and has more work than he's ever had. And we found over time that Francis Watch is a repetition of many of the same themes over and over. So this isn't a farewell to Francis Watch. It's simply a notice that going forward, episodes will be based around occurrences. So if a so-called encyclical is issued, then we'll probably record an episode. I may be hosting, one of my other colleagues may be hosting, and it, as always, will depend on His Excellency's time. And as I said, in 2021 particularly, it will be taken up with his largest seminary project to date. I, I guess, Your Excellency, it's always a question whether it's Connecticut or Michigan or Florida. Uh, this is going to be your fourth state, fourth seminary. I guess if we count Michigan twice, if we count for SSPX. Michigan, Connecticut, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Those are the moves. Uh, yes, and as you get older, your your inclination to move gets you know worse and worse. Let's put it that way. As I said in my newsletter, now I know why my 84-year-old mother at the time wanted to kill me when I made her move to Florida from Michigan back in 2005. <laughs> you, you just don't, you know, you look around your room and you think, oh no, I, we can't do this. And, uh, but then you have to move the seminary, which is a lot, you know, so, and just the, you know, one of the worst parts of moving is, uh, you have to find everything new, you know, where the post office is, all the services, all, everything has to change your doctors, your lawyers, your every single thing that you use must change. Where the supermarket is, where Panera Bread is, <laughs> everything that you're used to here has to be found again in that place, you know, so it's a real pain, but it's got to be done already. We have to uh, house people off campus in January. It's, it's the end of January, we have to uh, house people off campus. Three people have to live off campus. So, it, you know, typically we'll take in about, it's hard to say, but, uh, you know, maybe three or four next year. So, uh, I mean, there's no possible way that we can continue the way we are. Well, as we say, it's good news for the seminary and as not bad news for Francis Watch listeners, but simply we won't be recording on a regular quarterly basis. We'll simply be recording when Francis has a particularly loud or obnoxious outburst, or as we noted, if there is a so-called encyclical issued. But to today's 
episode, which is recording for October, November, and December, the final quarter of 2020, Francis still managed to get up to a few things. The first thing that we are going to talk about is a story from November, in which Francis says that the gates of heaven are always open to all people. The quote is, Your reflections will also concentrate on the city of the future. It is not by chance that, in the Bible, the destiny of all humanity finds fulfillment in a city, the heavenly Jerusalem described by the book of Revelation. As its name indicates, it is a city of peace, whose gates are always open to all peoples. A city built for people, beautiful and resplendent. A city of abundant fountains and trees, a welcoming city where sickness and death are no more. This lofty vision can mobilize the best energies of mankind for the building of a better world. I ask you not to lower your gaze, but to pursue high ideals and great aspirations. Yeah, what he describes as Jerusalem, the holy city, has always been a reference to to heaven, where God lives. And in every father, every commentary, every theologian, that has been the referring to heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, etc. To make it at the end of this thing that he says, where he gives a beautiful description of what the heavenly Jerusalem will be like, he then turns it into a communist, make the world a better place to live theme. This has been his theme all along. You know, I consider him to be an atheist. I, you know, I don't have you know proof of it, but. I think that it's so highly probable that he is a communist and an atheist, an atheistic communist, and a uh, New World Order man, an international socialist man. Practically everything he says is that he is practically incapable of saying anything supernatural. I mean, any kind of pious thing, you know, is whenever he gets on religion, it's usually something impious, some sort of heresy or some offense against uh, God's order, etc. So for him to compare the heavenly Jerusalem to making the world a better place to live is is totally in accord with this transformation of Catholicism into something that enhances the modern world and uh, where Catholicism itself has has adapted itself to modern thinking and everything modern. And it, it is there to make the world a better place to live in. So it's just paganism. It's, I think, atheistic communism. I really think that that's what he is. So it's the abomination of desolation in the holy place. But there's nothing new there. This has been a constant theme with him. Yes, as we've noted, all Francis watches are simply recapitulations of previous Francis watches in in different ways. Yes. Which brings us to our next story. The The gates of the heavenly Jerusalem will be open to all people. I would say, in particular, sodomites. Your Excellency. Yes. This quote is from the documentary Francesco, which many people are are going to be familiar with at this point. That story came out in October, right after we had recorded our last Francis Watch. Homosexuals have a right to be part of the family. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable because of it. What we have to create is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. I stood up for that. Well... They have a right to a family, Your Excellency. You only would have a right to get married if you are able to perform the marriage act correctly. That's true. So actually, 
it is conceivable that somebody of homosexual inclination could perform the marriage act with a woman or a person of the opposite sex correctly and bear children. That's possible. And that would not be even a grounds for annulment. If a woman comes and says, I found out my husband is, is you know, homosexual, that is not a grounds for annulment. As long as the essentials are there, and, you know, and, and there are people who bear children who are married and who have homosexual inclinations. You know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's, it's not unheard of. So that should be said, but that's where you have a right to get married. But here, I think the context is that these people who are living together in sin, that is in unnatural vice, have a right to have children. They obviously can't, you know, generate children, but to adopt children and to bring them up in a family, quote unquote, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is totally false. First of all, a family is constituted by the sacrament of matrimony, or in the case of pagans, by a civil contract of matrimony. That has to be only between a man and a woman. All right, so it is impossible to have a family if you if you do not uh, have either the civil contract, if you're pagans or others unbaptized, or the sacrament of matrimony for the baptized. All right, so it's impossible. Right, you are just two individuals living together in mortal sin, and if you do not repent of those things, you're going to go to hell. Right, so it's not a family. So to say that they have a right to a family, they meaning people living in this kind of unnatural vice have a right to a family, is totally false because the essential aspect of family is not there. That is the bond of matrimony. So to say that they should have civil unions that the civil order should recognize a type of marriage between these these people is a blasphemy against even the natural law, which of course is the law of God, and a blasphemy against the sacrament of matrimony. It is to also expose young persons to direct scandal, that is, by being indoctrinated into the virtues of unnatural vice and the quote-unquote virtues. That is, that it's nothing wrong with this, and you have to be open, and you have to be diverse, etc., etc., so that they could easily grow up in, uh, be, you know, becoming introduced in unnatural vice or assenting to it and consenting to it as if it's something legitimate. And that is obviously mortal sin, that is known as direct scandal, which is in a very serious matter. So that's what he is advocating. The state has the obligation to protect matrimony as it is either a civil contract or as a sacrament, but at least as a civil contract, and that can only be between a man and a woman. Any kind of imitation of that, any, any calling anything else a family, is, is a blasphemy against Almighty God. It's such a reversal here, since I'm I'm reminded of the Lateran Treaty, which wasn't even a hundred years ago at this point, in which the Holy Father was fighting for marriage in the state to be recognized by how the church recognizes marriage and not to permit. And now it's gone full circle where you have Bergoglio arguing for civil union between sodomites trying to push it into the mainstream of Italian society. It's unbelievable. 
Yes. Uh, it's not unbelievable in the light of Vatican II, though. All of this goes back to Vatican II. It, you know, liberty of conscience, freedom of religion, pachamentaris, which is actually freedom of conscience, which is actually worse than freedom of religion. <laughs> freedom of conscience means that you are free to, to make up your own morality. It, it is, it is the, the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Ye shall be like gods, having the knowledge of good and evil. It's the liberation of the mind and of the heart from God. And so John XXIII's freedom of conscience is actually worse than the document on religious liberty, which most of it concerns a, a civil, you know, your, your civil right to religious liberty and all. But freedom of conscience, it goes much deeper. Freedom of religion presupposes freedom of conscience. If you have the right to practice your religion however you please, which is Vatican II, it presupposes and implies the fact that you have a right to embrace a false religion however you please, that that is something that is not offensive to God, and that you have a right to do that. There's more commentary here from one of the members of the so-called couple. The film addresses the pastoral outreach of Pope Francis to those who identify as LGBT including a story of the pontiff encouraging two Italian men in a same-sex relationship to raise their children in the parish church, which one of them said was greatly beneficial to his children. He, and he's referring to Francis, he didn't mention what was his opinion on my family, probably because he's following the doctrine on this point, the man said, <laughs> while praising the Pope for a disposition and attitude of welcome and encouragement <laughs> on this point uh, following the doctrine on this point you know the very term heresy means selection or choosing that means he chooses whatever doctrine he wants to follow but you know after pachamama you know are we are we surprised about anything that goes on <laughs> in that awful place i mean uh, that that beautiful basilica but now an awful place because it's the house of heresy mm. you know does any of this shock us but again it's vatican too it's all Vatican too. It all goes back to Vatican too. And yet somehow the Sodomite says this will be good for his children to be here, so-called his children. Yes. One of the news stories referred to the rented uterus <laughs> of a lesbian. So this is the thing, Your Excellency, the unnaturalness just spreads out everywhere. So you have <laughs> yes. homosexual men, a lesbian woman, and somehow magically these children come out and they're referred to as their children. Yes. But it's neither really... Well, that is, as I said, I mean, they may be capable of generating children in a an immoral manner. They, that's possible, you know, but there's so many sins here that, you know, it'd be, it would just overload the confessional, you know, <laughs> it, 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 you'd have to distinguish so many sins that it's, it's just, uh, you know, we're living in a world that is, that would have been, if you could go back to the 19th century or 18th century and say, this is what the world would be like. Now, people would just shake their heads and say, oh, you're crazy. Well, as you know, lately I've been reading a lot about the reign of Pius IX, and I always smile when you see documents or you read clergy referring to the evils of the time, mm -hmm. right? The evils of the 1870s and the 1880s. Yes. And I thought, Holy Father, wait, wait till 2020. <laughs> right. right, right. I think implicitly they knew, though, that this would be the outcome. You know, they may not have been able to describe it, but I think, you know, all the principles are there. And there's, there's no stopping the effluent. You know, it's, it's like a tsunami of sewage, and there's no stopping it. Well, and all the things that 
Pius IX was fighting uh, during his time, and then Pius XI as well, we basically have their inheritors. So the index, literature, um, films, dances, the respect of the state to the Catholic faith, yes. all of those themes were still were there, and were just much further down the road, yes. but all from the same problems. Yes. Yes. One of those things that I, I don't suppose... Pius IX would have expected is the issuing of a Gaia coin from 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 the Vatican. Normally, the Vatican, of course, uh, when it's not getting into financial troubles via mafia banking, it can coin coins. And this one, uh, I suppose, is a variant of Pachamama. For listeners, you can go on and the Novus Ordo watch story is "Give to Gaia what is Gaia's?" question mark And you can see there's a picture of this shall we say, native-looking woman, and her stomach is the earth. And she's sort of gripping that. Yes, yes, a pregnant woman, yes. It's a 10-euro coin minted by the Vatican. 10-year-old, what do you mean? 10 euros. 10 euro, Ten euros. euros. Yes. Oh, okay, well, that, that will go far, you know. <laughs> well, again, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, as I said, after Pachamama, you know, are, are we surprised at anything? It should have been the Blessed Virgin Mary on there, but I mean, this man is is promoting paganism in with the, under the flag of ecumenism, and that makes all the sense in the world. That this is a, a form of religion that that has value because it, it's part of our uh, religious experience or somebody's religious experience, and also it enhances the idea that the the earth is a type of sacred thing that we must uh, worship and protect, like the statues of the gods. When Genseric came to Rome and sacked Rome, they took the statues of the gods and protected them. And say so, so the the earth is uh, you know sort of statue of the gods. And uh, I pointed out in other places, Saint Augustine said, <laughs> if the if because the, the Romans were saying, oh, the gods of you know Genseric sacked Rome because the Christians don't worship our gods, and he said, well, if the gods of Rome protect Rome, why did you have to protect the gods of Rome? <laughs> Why did you have to take these statues and put them away? Whereas the Christians went to their churches and were unmolested by Genseric in their churches. Mm. You know, that's a, you know, St. Augustine always, you know, drives the knife in, you know, so that, that's in the city of God. It, it's quite amusing, you know, that why, why did you have to take these statues and protect them? And uh, so, uh, yes, it, it's, it's paganism in the Vatican. I mean, that's all you can say about it. It is a complete abandonment of the Catholic faith. It is apostasy. And the only thing shocking is that there is still not any significant reaction among the bishops to this blatant apostasy. That there is this weakness and you know, an occasional comment or uh, you know, something like uh, that Tobin put out a clarification, you know, that, you know. And what he said was basically good, but the you know that's all that happens. You know, you correct him. Well, you know, and and it doesn't matter if the Holy Father is is saying all of these hard things and and is you know putting paganism in the Vatican. Well, that's all right. You know, we can live with that. You know, that's just something that that we have to overlook, and we'll look forward to the next Pope or something like that. The statement from. Bishop Tobin from Providence, which won't be too far from Pennsylvania, Your Excellency. Not too far, no. The Holy Father's apparent support for the recognition of civil unions for same-sex couples needs to be clarified. 
The Pope's statement clearly contradicts what has been the long-standing teaching of the Church about same-sex unions. The Church cannot support the acceptance of objectively immoral relationships. Individuals with same-sex attraction are beloved children of God and must have their personal human rights and civil rights recognized and protected by law. However, the legalization of their civil unions, which seek to simulate holy matrimony, is not admissible. Yeah, well, he's, he said some good things. He said a bad thing, though, because people who are inclined to unnatural vice do not have rights as pertaining to their unnatural vice. Whereas they are, yes, human beings. They should not be molested as human beings or in any way. But it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean that they have a right to practice homosexual acts without any sanction of law, that's false. So it depends on what you mean by that. But I, I tend to think that he doesn't mean the right thing, even Tobin, who is, you know, has a reputation for being conservative. But you know, conservative just means you're a, a slow-moving modernist. <laughs> well, on the other side of Tobin, we have... The maverick Vigano, who knows, who knows, he's in an undisclosed location. Right. As Catholics, we are called to side with those who defend life, the natural family, and national sovereignty. We thought that we had the Vicar of Christ at our side. We painfully acknowledge that, in this epical clash, he who ought to be guiding the bark of Peter has chosen to side with the enemy in order to sink it. And he capitalized the word enemy, Your Excellency. Well, that argues that the man is not the Pope, because that means he's a traitor, that, that he is a, a someone that intends the ruination of the Catholic religion and the Catholic Church. If he intends that ruination, how can he have the authority to rule the Church? I mean, can somebody answer that question for me? How do you do that? If, you know, a president of the United States sides with Adolf Hitler, <laughs> you know, if Roosevelt said, I'm on Hitler's side, and I hope Hitler wins. <laughs> Is he still the president of the United States? Would people say, well, you know, he's still the president? I mean, can he direct our troops and direct the military And when he, he hopes that Hitler wins? Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, imagine that scenario. So for him to say these bold things is very nice, but they lack teeth. Do something, Archbishop Vigano. Don't just tell us. Well, you've been bullish on him on previous episodes, Jackson. See, has your opinion shifted? Well, I'm bullish on him as far as analyzing Vatican II and telling us what's wrong. Yes, more than anyone, I think even his insights about Vatican II exceed those of Archbishop Lefebvre. I mean, Archbishop Lefebvre really blasted Vatican II, but I think Vigano has seen it more deeply even. And so I still feel the same about him, but I tend not to take him so seriously anymore because, well, thank you very much. What are we supposed to do? I mean, he, 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 might, he might trump out on you, Your Excellency, you know, a vegan will lead people up the primrose path and then... Yes. Yes. I mean, he's 79 years old, or perhaps he'll be... Uh, he was born in 1941, I think. He'll be 80 this year. I mean, the only thing that is truly stopping Vatican II is what we are doing. And it's a tiny, tiny effort in comparison to the size of the church. But nonetheless, we are stopping Vatican II. We are putting a, an obstacle to it. We are training people in the traditional faith. And we are giving them traditional sacraments. 
and the people that come to us can be identified in doctrine and morals, etc., with the pre-Vatican II religion, which is certainly Catholic, the 2,000-year-old Catholic religion. They can identify with it. They can be identified with it. People can say, oh, yes, you're just, you, you believe and do the same things as my grandfather. See, whereas telling us, you know, that what's wrong, like telling a, a, a man that has terminal cancer, hey, you have terminal cancer. Do you know that? You're going to die. You're, you're just going to have a horrible death, a painful death. And you're going to have sores all, all over your body, and everything's going to be terrible, terrible, terrible. That's all we hear from Vigano. Do something. Do something. Get yourself consecrated validly and turn around and make priests, as Archbishop Lefebvre did, you know, for all of his inconsistency. He's a great man, Archbishop Lefebvre, for having done that and having understood that that's what's necessary. Whereas just to, to comment, you know, from a hidden place on what's wrong, but well, we don't really need to hear that. We know what's wrong, Archbishop Vigano. And yes, you have some good insights, but, you know, I've stopped reading him, actually, because, okay, you know, it's, you know we kind of know that already. And, you know, this... He's the great purple hope among the semi-trads, Your Excellency. Yes, yes, but I think he's going to die, you know, in the next five or six years or so, and and leave this legacy of these interventions, and uh, and that'll be that. You know, it'll just be somebody to read and say, oh, you know, and you know, just to cheer on and something like a rally or something like that. But I mean, it's not going to do us any good. The same thing with all of the uh, you know the Novus Ordo conservatives and SSBX. They're all tied up with Vatican II and and the Novus Ordo. Athanasia Schneider. Yes. Same thing. It's all Vatican II. The Unicum people, all of them are attached to Vatican II and to the whole Vatican II establishment. And they're going to go down the drain with it. Well, part of the Vatican II establishment is having ecumenical prayer rallies. And Vigano, along with Dr. Taylor Marshall, participated in something called a Jericho March in Washington, D.C. And the description of a Jericho March is comprised of Judeo-Christians, so-called, collectively praying to God to intercede, expose a particular darkness, and bring about justice. As a community of believers, we take our petitions to heaven, and we know that our mighty and powerful God answers and can move mountains. Jericho was a city of false gods and corruption. Just as Joshua was instructed to march around the walls of Jericho, Jericho marchers march around at a specific place and time until that darkness is exposed and the walls of corruption fall down. The Jericho marshes are also a unified celebration of authentic and diverse Judeo-Christian forms of worship, including praying, chanting, preaching, singing, rosary recitations, Eucharistic processions, and blowing shofars. Individuals and groups on Jericho marches are self-led. <laughs> oh, Your Excellency, Eucharistic procession and the blowing of a shofar, uh, probably followed by a seder in the evening. Yeah, yeah. No, it's ecumenical. It, it's diversity, all of that, you know, stuff. And yes, I mean, Vigano was a Novus Ordo bishop. So that he participated in something like that is, should not be surprising to us. You know, he's a Vatican II bishop. So, you know, his, again, his comments about how terrible everything is, is really from the peanut gallery. 
it, it lacks it lacks practical substance and you know it's theoretical and it's very nice but the man is a Novus Ordo archbishop and he, and for as long as you're attached to the Novus Ordo you're going to be attached to that sort of thing you know the very term judeo christian christianity has displaced judaism so those things cannot be hyphenated you can hyphenate judeo masonry your excellency <laughs> <laughs> yes yes <laughs> but you know, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So Judeo does not belong with Christianity. Judaism is finished, as St. Paul clearly says in his epistles. And, and Christianity is its fulfillment. So you, you, to, to put them together it is a term that, that uh, you know, it really doesn't belong. It should be Christian, obviously, and Catholic. But are we surprised? You know, or, you know, it's just... Well, they, they also use this term community of believers, which, you know, people of faith, Your Excellency, this is the, the catchphrase. Well, that's where faith is a feeling. You see, it doesn't have an object. It's just a feeling. It's, it's, it's a warm feeling inside. You feel good about God. And uh, it doesn't have an object, which is dogma. You see, so that, that's the modernist notion of faith. Faith is detached from dogma. It's just you, you have a feeling about God. Yeah, they all have feelings about God. You, know, you want to call that faith? It isn't faith. Faith is, is an assent of the intellect to truths revealed by God and proposed by the Roman Catholic Church. That's the definition of faith. I doubt if you know, all of those people qualify. <laughs> That's very, very, very rigid of you, Your Excellency. Extremely rigid. Yes, I plead guilty. I am an extremely rigid person. You know, just the... <laughs> Unironically, in a nod to the age that we're in, the term Jericho marches is trademarked, uh, Your Excellency. Just so, just in case you want to start a Jericho march of your own, they can they have, they reserve the right to sue you in good old fashioned American litigious manner. How about a Lepanto march, <laughs> something like that? Uh, that would be more my style. <laughs> In the final segment of today's episode, we have some of the et cetera that we normally talk about. One was the sort of science fiction Vatican nativity scene, which it seemed that even Bergoglio disowned after a while. But it looked like there was a Darth Vader uh, wise man there at this uh, horrifying nativity scene. But they just have to ratchet it up. Uh, you're gonna see it's got to get worse and worse all the time. It's uh, you know, and for him to disassociate himself, well, he's the Pope, you know. Why doesn't he burn it down? You know, like he walks out of the Vatican and sees it, and then you you know instruct somebody to throw gasoline on it and burn it. <laughs> that would be the thing to do. No, I mean that that's just silly. You know, he should take it down. You know, it's it's disingenuous to say, well, you know, I I disassociate. It's a blasphemy to, and it bizarre art is always something of the devil. God is the author of nature, and art imitates nature, and therefore, in a way, imitates God. But when art departs from nature, as those things do, those horrid things that you see there do, then you are really with the devil. I mean, that, that's, that's the work of the devil, to destroy God's work, to distort, and it's particularly in something religious. That that is a just so typical of the devil, and and uh, so you know for that to be there. But are we surprised? I mean, the devil is in the Vatican. You know, he has control of it. Are we surprised to see that? You know, no. You know, I mean, I often say to, to traditionalists, 
you know, they, they come up, oh, did you see this? Did you see that? Are you surprised? I mean, after all these years, are you surprised? The only way you can be surprised is to think of those people as Roman Catholics. Yes, then the disgust and the surprise and, oh, terrible, comes to mind. But they're not Roman Catholics. These people don't believe in God. See, so why should we even think about it? You know, what's the price of beans today? You know, it's, it's much more interesting things to talk about than that, oh, you know, there's something terrible going on in the Vatican. The Vatican has been occupied by faithless people since the 1960s. Yes, yes, they've gotten rid of all the faithful ones. Yes. But speaking of surprises, or perhaps non-surprises, St. Januarius's blood did not liquefy, mm-hmm. and the people of Naples were terrified. Can you speak a little bit about this, Your Excellency, to people who may not know about St. Januarius? Yes, there is an ongoing miracle that takes place every year, with the, uh, I think three times a year, with the liquefaction of the relic of the blood of St. Januarius, who was the Bishop of Naples, uh, very Benevento, I think, very close to Naples. And his feast day is in uh, September, yes, San Gennaro, that's the Italian word for it. And... Uh, you know, according to, you know, it's not, you know, anything that pertains to dogma, but the Italians say that if it does not liquefy, it's a sign of impending doom or something terrible that's going to happen. And there are some cases of that in history, you know, earthquakes, you know, uh, and a series of earthquakes, you know, but, you know, Italy is an earthquake prone place. So, you know, you know, you can't, I wouldn't want to exaggerate too much, but there is some reason why it doesn't. So uh, it's hard for me to comment on it, but that's the tradition anyway, that it is a bad sign. Now, Italians, however, tend to be superstitious. So, you know, whether that's true or not, whether it always bears out or not, I don't know. And uh, so I I just can't say, but it it is, let's say, a bad sign. (laughs) The last item in the segment and for this episode is 2020 commemorated 50 years of the Society of St. Pius X, and there was much celebration that went on, and there was a, a newsletter that went out commemorating this. And I suppose, Jackson, we've commented on it many different episodes, many different series, and probably here on Francis Watch as well, but I suppose it's an anniversary, I think, of celebration for the Society of St. Pius X, but for those of us who've looked and studied and someone like yourself who was part of it, it's 50 years of missed opportunity. Yes. 50 years of malformation of laity, of uh, so-called negotiations of ambivalence and a failure to establish a movement based on principles, but rather uh, ultimately on the sentiments of the archbishop. Yes. All of the above is true from the beginning in 1970, uh, November 1st, 1970 is when it was founded. The idea was to create a, a traditional niche in the Novus Ordo. And in defense of that, that's what everybody wanted, including myself. No one had any idea that the Novus Ordo would become what it is today. We had the idea that it was a lot of misled liberals who were, were you know, changing the church in a way that it should not be changed. We did not consider them heretics. We just thought that they were liberals. They, you know, uh, that's, that was the term we used. Uh, and uh, 
that we would just like to do our thing in this, you know, and have a niche and not be bothered with that. We, we just don't want to be part of that. That was the sentiment that everybody had at the time. So I would not criticize Archbishop Lefebvre or any of those people involved in it at the time for the, the general mentality that we all had. But as time wore on, the Novus Ordo evolved and we evolved. And there was, our reaction to it became more in-depth we read more, we read the history of it more, the, the modernist movement, what the modernists intended. Also, Paul VI was becoming more and more bold, and the Novus Ordo was becoming worse and worse. And that's why the, uh, you had all of the trouble within it, in, because it was sticking to that original idea that was an antique, you might say, and that is a niche in the Novus Ordo. The, that was the original idea 50 years ago, a niche in the Novus Ordo, and that doesn't work anymore. These people have shown themselves, it started with the suppression of a cone in seven, nine, uh, 1974, I'm <laughs> not that old, uh, 1974, and then the, uh, the excommunication of Archbishop Lefebvre, the suspension and excommunication later on. I mean, there were gradual steps in this repudiation of Catholicism, not merely uh, the, the idea of living with these people in the same church became impossible. You see, and you know, we learned this as time went on, and then more and more things. You had Assisi and and you know John Paul II and all of the and, you know, pa and so, Pachamama and, and now Pachamama, and but still that same model of finding a niche in the Novus Ordo has endured. Also, there was never a declaration of principles that this is what we will follow, no matter what. This is what we think. It always was the shifting sands of Archbishop Lefebvre, which would shift as the mood in Rome would shift. And so sometimes he was hardline, sometimes softline, and you were expected to shift back and forth with him. And if you didn't, you might end up on the wrong end. <laughs> And many did, you know, if you didn't move with him, he considered you to be disloyal. And that has been the history of that organization all along. And so they're still hoping for this reconciliation with the, with the Pachamama people and repudiate any idea that this man could perhaps is not the Pope uh, or, or that, you know, this involves a defection from Catholicism. Or if they admit that, they somehow figure, well, it's not infallible, so we don't have to worry about it. They have a very, very flawed and, and intrinsically flawed theological position. And they train their priests in this, they train their lay people in this, that this is a viable way in which to, to address the problem in the church, and that is to ignore the Catholic hierarchy, to, to give them the lip service of being you know, united to the Catholic hierarchy. They're not united because the Novus Ordo hierarchy is not united to them. So they're not, you, it, it takes two to tango, as we say, you know. I remember you say, if John is with Mary, Mary must also say that she is with John. <laughs> yes. You know, so to do the unicum and to have the picture of the Holy Father in the, the lobby of the church doesn't do it. That's not submission to the Roman pontiff. And if you are not submitted to the Roman pontiff, you go to hell. That's a dogma of the Catholic Church. So they are not submitted to the Roman pontiff. They think they are, though. 
by and their priests tell them that that by doing this, you know, in a cum and in the picture, that we're with the Pope. That's just a big farce and a big lie. They're not with the Pope. And if he is the Pope, he is not with them. And their apostolate is not authorized by the Novus Ordo hierarchy, which they consider to be the Catholic hierarchy. So it's a mess. It's a, it's a total mess. And they will eventually draw people back to the Novus Ordo because the Pope has a gravitational pull, as I have said in many, in many, in many shows, a gravitational pull, a very strong gravitational pull. If you are a Catholic, you must be with the Pope. If you're saying that man is the Pope, you are saying to all of your people, you should be with him. Otherwise, you're not Catholic. I mean, that is page one of the catechism, practically. So they are pointing to him as the Pope. And just like the star of Bethlehem pointed to the Christ child, they are pointing to him as the Pope. Where Peter is, there is the church, I've heard it said. Yes, yes, that's St. Ambrose. So, you know, it's a, a formula of disaster. It's 50 years of derailing the traditional movement. So in that sense, it's a very sad anniversary indeed. It is a sad anniversary. Yes, it is. Well, Your Excellency, as always, we thank you for your time on Francis Watch. I was going to say what's new at the seminary, but I, I know you're, you're contemplating lots of boxes. Not yet. Not yet. We're far from boxes yet. We're contemplating approvals from the city of Reading for all of the remodeling that we have to do. So I'm going up uh, this weekend, or Monday actually, to Reading. And uh, sitting down with the architect and the asbestos man. Oh, no. Because the asbestos has to be abated. And uh, all of those things, when you change use, the city gets all involved with you. So we're changing use. If this had been a seminary, they would not have said anything. Mm. But it's changing use. And uh, But it was our only alternative. I, I, you know, it, We could not have done anything else. We were really up against it as far as getting more room for for seminarians as you see i mean we are already we will already be housing people off campus in a matter of a few weeks we have to put three seminarians off campus so and we'll be a total of 15 uh seminarians uh and you know that's not a throng but for us it's it's we we averaged for years about seven seminarians at a time for years so you know, this is double our average. It's a, a, lo- a lot of adjustments for everybody. Yes. And uh, this seminary, we counted the rooms, 24 rooms for seminarians, and then uh, five or six rooms for priests. So that was another consideration is as the priests come up, we have to have a place for them to live. And we're full here. And uh, so we were up against it, and that building was the right price, and we... Uh, we had some big donations for it. I, I, when I was hesitating about it, I got a very big donation from Europe, and I said, I'm not going to fight Providence anymore. If somebody <laughs> calls me on the phone and says, I'll give you all this money, I'm not going to fight it. So it, it'll work out for us. It, it, you know, it, it's an adjustment. It's a sacrifice uh, primarily of our beautiful chapel and big chapel, which is suitable for ceremonies. We're going from a sanctuary which is 2,500 square feet to a sanctuary which is 850 square feet. 
It's a good thing you knocked out that Episcopal consecration already, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes, well, we'll have to have all our big ceremonies in some other church, but we are actually looking at a church in the area so that people, because Philadelphia is very Catholic. We are about, uh, I think, 45 miles from Philadelphia, so we're looking at a church close into Philadelphia, and uh, i I uh, hoping that that will work out for us. All right. We will keep that in our prayers and also the seminarians for their, their studies for the rest of this school year. And as always, you're actually, thank you for all of your years of devotion to Francis Watch. Oh, we've been able to chronicle this uh, man from Argentina from the beginning. So I think it'll be useful. Yes, that's, that's 2013. 2013. This is seven years Eight years. We've been covering him since the day of his so-called election. Yes. So, yes. Something to look at, and I, I hope that future, if the world lasts so long, the future generations will be able to look back and see the documentation that there's no doubt about what this man believes. Whatever he believes, it doesn't seem that he believes uh, in God, at least not in a Catholic God. No. Thank you, Your Excellency, as always. Thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.